G'day, mate. Forty here. Let's uh, take it over to see what Tucker Carlson has to say. Want to explore the greater theme of under the heel of the liberal jackboot? I think that's the origin of conservative rage. No matter how many elections you win, no matter how many politicians you put in office, why is it that conservatives perpetually feel like they are living under the heel of the liberal jackboot? So let's start off the show with Tucker Carlson. Then I've got a guest coming on. At 6 p.m. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. We told you about this on Friday night and then over the weekend we put it into some context. So we'll summarize the story for you once more. Last summer, a group of American intelligence analysts working for the U.S. government issued a report on the origins of COVID. They've been asked to and they did. Now, these people work at CIA, NSA, a bunch of other agencies, and they concluded that the coronavirus may very well have been manufactured in a lab by the Chinese military. Turns out that's not a talk radio conspiracy theory. As a factual matter, it's a very real possibility. And if it's true, if that's what happened, and again, many highly informed people believe that's exactly what happened, that would mean the Chinese government is responsible for killing millions of people, people around the world. It would also raise questions, obvious questions about motive. Why would China unleash a deadly virus on the globe? To the American mind, that is an unimaginable thing to do. But the Chinese government thinks very differently from the way that we think. And here's why. America has been the dominant power in the world for more than 100 years, since the end of the First World War, when Europe destroyed itself. Empires destroying themselves always paves way for new empires, something we should keep in mind at the moment. So American attitudes about everything are shaped by generations of casual affluence. We're in charge and we always will be in charge. That's what all of us assume. But the Chinese government does not assume this about us or them. Until fairly recently, China was a poor country. There are still millions of living Chinese who remember seeing their neighbors starve to death during famines. As a result of that experience, China is very aggressive and very ambitious in ways that your average State Department official from Bethesda could not begin to comprehend. So would a government like that use COVID as a bioweapon? Well, why wouldn't it? The coronavirus reshuffled the global order. It crushed the American economy. It made China preeminent. If China takes over the world, and that appears to be coming, COVID will be one of the main reasons it was able to. So by definition, you would think we would want to know where COVID came from. That's a meaningful question. But Joe Biden doesn't want to know. He ignored the report he ordered. He ignored the findings of his own intelligence agencies. That's bizarre when you think about it. And if you think that's weird, how about this? This February, Biden canceled a counter-espionage program called the China Initiative. Now, the point of that program was stopping the rampant threat of our national security secrets by the government of China. But the White House decided to very little fanfare that somehow that program was racist and therefore it had to end. That means the Chinese government can now spy and steal with impunity. Not since Franklin Roosevelt colluded with Joseph Stalin has an American president done anything like that. But Joe Biden didn't hesitate. And then he kept doing things like this. Now Biden says he plans to end tariffs against China, tariffs that Donald Trump put in place and that China has been complaining about ever since. And not only is Joe Biden ending tariffs against China, Joe Biden's Justice Department has just arrested the man responsible for those tariffs. His name is Peter Navarro. He was the most effective China hawk in the Trump administration. 
Last month, Peter Navarro was handcuffed at a Washington, D.C. airport and dragged to jail in leg irons. Why? Supposedly because of January 6th. But Peter Navarro had literally nothing to do with January 6th. He wasn't even there. But Joe Biden didn't stop there. Steve Bannon was the other notable voice in the Trump administration, warning about the growing power and malicious intent of the Chinese government. In November of last year, Steve Bannon was also arrested by the Biden Justice Department, also on absurd pretexts. So take a step back. What's the message here? Well, it's unmistakable. Don't criticize the Chinese government or we will throw you in jail. Now, if you happen to be watching all of this from Beijing, as Chinese leaders definitely have been, you would be applauding. Joe Biden just arrested your loudest critics. How gratifying is that? Things are going well for you. You already control Canada, whose brain-dead prime minister is effectively a Chinese lackey. Now the most powerful country in the world is doing exactly what you want it to do. You'd be thrilled by this. You'd be especially thrilled to see Joe Biden destroy America's single greatest asset, which is its domestic energy supply, and make the United States entirely dependent on Chinese technology for wind and solar projects. If you're the Chinese government, this is the masterstroke. This is the checkmate. Once you control a country's energy grid, you control that country. And you would know that because you didn't go to Yale Law School. And you know something about reality as a result. And by the way, if you're watching all of this from Beijing, you would find it especially amusing to have the president of the United States sell you his country's strategic petroleum reserve, even as he declared oil and gas off limits to his own population. If you could pull that off, you would know you were entirely in charge of the U.S. government. You could make Joe Biden do anything. But of course, you already knew that because you've seen it in action. When American forces left Afghanistan, Joe Biden turned over Afghanistan's entire mineral wealth, which is vast, to the Chinese government. That would include gold and coal and oil and gas, lithium, rare earth minerals, resources the United States needs to make smartphones, automobiles, power our energy grid. But Joe Biden handed all of that to the government of China. And then he kept going. Biden also dropped the Trump administration's efforts to ban Chinese surveillance programs that poses social media apps. That means WeChat and TikTok. Then Biden approved licenses for Huawei, which is controlled by the Chinese government, to buy auto chips. That gives the Chinese government even deeper control over the automotive supply chain in this country, one of our last manufacturing sectors. And then as a humiliating flourish, a deep and groveling kowtow, Joe Biden signed a so-called climate pledge with China. China will ignore this pledge. Obviously, they already are ignoring it. But we will take the pledge seriously because that's the kind of country we are. And that pledge will further cripple our domestic energy production because that's what it was designed to do. It's all pretty amazing when you think about it, when you put it in context. Whatever helps the Chinese government, Joe Biden has dutifully done. Whatever hurts America's most important strategic interests, he has also done. But why has he done this? How did the Chinese government wind up with so much control over the United States president, over Joe Biden's behavior? We've been mulling that for more than a year. And that's why since October of 2020, we have been on the Hunter Biden laptop story, because that seems like the key to this question, how the Chinese government got so much control over Joe Biden. Now, the tech companies have tried to censor that story at every turn. They're doing so again tonight. And it's not surprising why they're beholden to China as well. But we've continued to pull those threads. So is the Daily Mail. In April, the Daily Mail reported that a whistleblower was in possession of 450 gigabytes of deleted material from Hunter Biden's laptop. The whistleblower's name is Jack Maxey. He'd gone to Switzerland, fearing retaliation. 
We wanted to know more. So in April, we flew to Zurich to meet Jack Maxey. Here's part of what he told us. So you've taken a look at the laptop, and you now believe that there are deleted files on that laptop that nobody else has seen, but that you have found and seen. Um, describe how you found these files. Well, my first purpose of this trip was to get the 128,000 emails, of which 120,000 were in archives on the original uh, visible portion of it, and to catalog all of the text messages, which most of which are also in archives. And we did that relatively quickly. I was just going to make copies for the Senate, the House, and all the state AGs, and see if maybe local sheriffs could start enforcing the laws that the feds wouldn't. And about day five of this process, uh, one of my guys said, hey, Jack, I feel like there's more on here. Do you mind if I try some little tricks? And I said, sure, go ahead. And within 15 minutes, he's like, oh, my God, we just got 10, th you know, 10 gigabytes of this, five gigabytes of this, that, and the other thing. Um, Ultimately, we ended up with over 100,000 more emails that we've been able to scrape out of it, 80,000 images and videos. So you can say what you want about Jack Maxey and you can dismiss him by calling him names, but the story he was telling was really interesting, tantalizing, in fact, given what we already knew was on the laptop. But for some reason, no one in law enforcement appeared to be listening or even care. But the Daily Mail kept going on this. Recently, they said they gained access to a backup of Hunter Biden's iPhone from the laptop. And it's a good thing they did. It turned out to be a trove of fascinating information. It included a voicemail from Joe Biden to his son talking about a story in the New York Times about Hunter Biden's business dealings in China. Here's part of it. Hey, pals, Dad, it's 815. Um on uh, Wednesday night, if you get a chance, give me a call. Nothing urgent. Just want to talk to you. I thought the article, at least the thing on online, is going to be printed tomorrow in the Times, was good. I think you're clear. And uh, anyway, um, if you get a chance, give me a call. I love you. So the context for that is complicated. Here's what's not complicated. Joe Biden has said on the record repeatedly that he had no knowledge of his son's business dealings with China. That proves Joe Biden was lying, and we have a lot more on this coming up. But just know that. That voicemail, which apparently is real, proves that Joe Biden knew about his son's business dealings with China. That ought to be enough to spur a wave of media inquiries to the White House. Why did you lie to us? You haven't seen that. Now, the Times piece you just heard Joe Biden reference was published on December 12th, 2018. The story reported on Hunter's dealings with a man called Yi Zheming. He led the CEFC, China Energy Company, until 2018. At that point, he was arrested on charges of corruption and economic crimes by the Chinese government, which is never a good thing. He hasn't been seen since. The government of China has seized most of CEFC's assets. One of his top deputies, called Patrick Ho, was also convicted in New York of bribing African officials to help Iran avoid oil sanctions. What a group. These are Hunter Biden's business friends. So why would Joe Biden have any interest in this? Why would he be concerned about a New York Times story on CEFC and Hunter Biden? Well, it could be for the obvious reason. Joe Biden himself was making money from this, from CEFC, lots of money. 
According to emails obtained by the New York Post from Hunter Biden's laptop in October of 2020, one of Hunter Biden's business partners, James Gillier, explained that Joe Biden would receive a 10 percent stake in CEFC. Quote, the equity will be distributed as follows, he wrote, 20 to Hunter, 20 to Rob Walker, 20 to Gillier himself, 20 to Tony Bobulinski, 10 to Jimmy Biden, that would be Hunter Biden, that would be a, the president's brother, and quote, 10% held for the big guy. The big guy. So Tony Bobulinski, whom we interviewed for a full hour, he got a 20% stake of this deal, told us that there was, quote, no question the big guy is who he so obviously is. That would be Joe Biden. This arrangement meant millions of Chinese dollars for Hunter and Joe Biden. In early 2017, just a few weeks after Biden left the White House the first time, a company controlled by Yi called State Energy HK sent $6 million in wire transfers to Robinson Walker LLC. Robinson Walker LLC was controlled by Rob Walker, one of Hunter Biden's business partners. Then in June of 2017, Hunter Biden emailed Yi demanding $10 million more as seed money for a new company called Sinohawk Holdings. In August of 2017, another Hunter Biden-controlled company called Hudson West received a $5 million wire from CEFC. CFC also paid Hunter Biden's law firm, Owasco, nearly $5 million. These are according to bank records reviewed by Senate investigators. If we just pause here for a moment. In their details, these stories bear a striking resemblance to the Russiagate insanity that we were dragged through for years. Remember, they go on TV and bore you for an hour with how all these things fit together, and then this money went that way. But in the end, there was nothing there. Operating on the theory, which isn't really a theory, it's true that they always accuse you of exactly what they themselves are doing. It's kind of striking that the truth about what the Biden family, the president, his son and his brother, Jimmy. Is almost exactly what they accused the Trumps of doing, except in the case of the Bidens, they really were getting rich from a foreign power that means us harm. And it's not Russia, which is globally almost irrelevant. It's China, which is now preeminent. So to continue with the details. Owasco, in turn, sent the $1.4 million to Lion Hall Consulting. That was a consulting firm run by Jimmy Biden, the former nightclub owner, the president's brother, and his wife. And that was just the beginning of the arrangement. Emails unearthed by the New York Post found that someone called the chairman, that would be Yi, promised to pay Hunter Biden $10 million a year for, quote, and we're quoting, introductions alone. In other words, leveraging his father's position in government to get rich. That's illegal, right? It's also a violation of the FARA Act, which the Biden administration has been enforcing against its political enemies. So Hunter Biden wrote to a CEFC official that he had amended the deal to provide for, quote, a much more lasting and lucrative arrangement, end quote. These payments continued even after CEFC's leaders were arrested on corruption charges. Hunter was paid another $1 million to represent Yee's deputy, Patrick O, even though he had no criminal defense experience because he was a lawyer, because he went to Yale Law School, because he's a genius, the one that your kids can't get into because they're not as smart as Hunter Biden. Ooh, this is one corrupt system the Bidens sit atop of. And if that's not enough, Hunter once referred to Patrick Ho, and we're quoting, as the effing spy chief of China according to leaked audio obtained by Real Clear Politics. So here you have the president's son who's talking to his dad about his business deal with China, admitting the guy he is dealing with is the Chinese government's spy chief. It's almost unbelievable. 
Joe Biden has sort of been asked about this. His response, I didn't know anything. Watch. Mr. Vice President, how many times have you ever spoken to your son about his overseas business dealings? I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business. I have never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their businesses, period. Huh. You lie, and now you've been caught lying. So after the voicemail we played a moment ago surfaced a few weeks ago, proving that Biden lied, the White House was asked about this. Not the president directly, but his publicist, the glass ceiling breaking publicist they're always bragging about. Watch the response. Why is there a voicemail of the president talking to his son about his overseas business dealings if the president has said he's never spoken to his son about his overseas business dealings? Well, first I'll say that uh, what the president said stands. So if he if that's what the president said, that he, that is what stands. And you second, secondly, New York Times article but secondly, concerning secondly, business dealings. And he says, I think you're clear. How is that not him talking to his son about his overseas business dealings? We're not from this podium. I am not going to talk about alleged materials from the laptop. So I will. The, I'm the not. Voice on the I am not going to talk about alleged materials on the laptop. Are it's you not happening. Then that it is not. Peter, I refer you to uh, to his son's representative. Alleged materials, so they can get away with that because no major news organization in the United States picked up the thread. We tried to. We're a talk show. We flew to Zurich because we thought, wow, maybe there's something there. But the big newspapers completely ignored this, even though it's been out there for a year and a half. And it's obvious it's not just about Hunter Biden being a crackhead who liked hookers. It's about the Biden family, including the president of the United States, business dealings with the government of China, which seeks to displace the United States globally. So because no news organizations would take this up and because law enforcement agencies seemed completely uninterested. The FBI has had a copy of this laptop for years now and done nothing with it. It's fallen to people like Jack Maxey to find out what this is about. So on Sunday, a programmer who worked with Maxey posted a live stream video outlining his intention of dropping Biden's, Hunter Biden's entire hard drive online, along with clues for users to break into the iPhone and iPad backups. He put it on 4chan, which is some sort of website that basically not very moderated and it's kind of the website of last resort for people who want to get information out there but can't because everything is so completely censored at this point. So even on 4chan, the moderators quickly took these links down, but Internet users are already seeding the contents of the backups on torrent sites. Bottom line, this is going to live online forever. It's not going away. Now, is it real? We have no reason to believe any of these data are fabricated. We've not independently verified them. We're not putting some of this stuff on the air. It's salacious. But it's pretty obvious that the materials that we've looked at are real. At the same time, it's becoming clear that Maxi and his former coders are the only two people making any progress in investigating Hunter Biden's criminal activity. Again, the FBI has done nothing since obtaining the hard drive years ago. Meanwhile, it's raiding people's houses because they, what, supported Trump in the last election? And the tech companies, as always, are on board on China's side, once again, censoring any discussion of Hunter Biden's activities, criminal activities, some of which are on video. And if you don't believe it, try it yourself. Type in Hunter Biden weighing crack on a scale, which is out there. Type that into Google and see what happens. You'll get obscure results from random YouTube channels. When you click on Google's news tab, nothing from an American media publication appears. They're stepping on the scale. They're censoring information. 
as they have from the very beginning. Why are they doing that? Because it matters. That's why. It's not about whether Hunter Biden was a druggie. Yeah, he was with a screwed up personal life and a weird personal life. Yeah, knew that. That's not what it's about. They're not protecting Hunter Biden. They're protecting this administration and they're trying to prevent you from understanding this administration's posture toward China. Among the latest findings, as reported by Andrew Kerr at the Washington Examiner, are that, quote, Joe Biden wired $100,000 to Hunter Biden during the same time frame. Hunter Biden spent over $30,000 on Russian escorts who may very well be linked to an Eastern European human trafficking ring. <laughs> There's a lot like that. But again, the real story is not that Hunter Biden is a crackhead who like prostitutes and underage girls, although that appears to be very true and law enforcement should look into it. But for the rest of us, that's not the real story. The real story is that the Biden family was getting rich from business with our enemies. They were selling access to the U.S. government to China. And that is a crime. It's certainly a moral crime. As recently as 2020, Joe Biden denied that he or his family had made any money from China. Watch this. Vice President Biden, there have been questions about the work your son has done in China and for a Ukrainian energy company when you were vice president. In retrospect, was anything about those relationships inappropriate or unethical? Nothing was unethical. My son has not made money in terms of this thing about, uh, what are you talking about, China. I have not had, a, the only guy made money from China is this guy. He's the only one. Nobody else has made money from China. So you spend so much time noting Joe Biden's creeping senility that you can overlook the fact that in his lucid moments, he's a liar, just flat out liar. That's a lie. In fact, it's a lie so obvious, even the Washington Post, which has carried water for Biden since the very beginning, had to correct it. According to the Washington Post, quote, over the course of 14 months, the Chinese energy conglomerate, that would be CEFC, and its executives paid $4.8 million to entities controlled by Hunter Biden and his uncle. That would be Jimmy Biden, the former nightclub owner. Are these guys experts on energy? What are they experts on? Nothing. Leveraging the U.S. government for personal profit. That's it. And it's not just CEFC that funded the Bidens. In all, Hunter Biden made more than $30 million from entities affiliated with China's communist government. Hunter Biden's biggest deal with China involved a Chinese investment fund called Bohai Harvest RST, or BHR. In December of 2013, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden flew to Beijing. It was a government trip on a government plane. And that's when Hunter introduced his father to a BHR executive. Again, that's a flat-out violation of the law. You can't take Air Force Two to China to lobby on behalf of the Chinese government, your own father. Full-on crime. Now, the Bidens denied it, but Hunter eventually took a 10% stake in that company, a stake worth about $20 million. Then a Chinese company called Harvest Global wired another $5 million to another company controlled by Hunter Biden, this one called Burnham Asset Management. He's got more companies than your average mafia, Don. According to the Washington Free Beacon, Hunter Biden, quote, reached out directly to the firm's chairman and said the investment, and we're quoting, would be important to the Biden family. Biden family, including his dad, the vice president of the United States. So what's in it for Harvest Global? Well, per the Free Beacon quote, Biden put together a financial proposal for Burnham to pitch to Harvest that promised, quote, Washington, D.C. access for investors. They're selling influence, selling influence with the U.S. government. Again, not to Belgium, not to Swaziland, to China, the country that has the United States in its sights. They want to displace us as the leader of the world, and they will be cruel masters if they're ever able to do that. 
Hunter Biden also co-founded a firm famously called Rosemont Realty. This is a good one. Rosemont Realty owns commercial buildings all over the United States. Now, a Hong Kong-based firm called Gemini Investments later snapped up Rosemont Realty. Gemini was controlled at the time by Sino Ocean Land. That was chaired by the head of China Ocean Shipping Corporation, or Costco. As Peter Schweitzer reported, quote, Japanese government agencies report that, quote, Chinese intelligence services are closely linked to Costco. Well, of course they are. And that's true of all big Chinese companies. It's not like the United States. They don't have independent big businesses in China. They're all arms of the Chinese government. Now, China's president, Xi Jinping, has called Costco, and we're quoting, the dragon's head for China. What did Hunter Biden make for doing this? About 180 grand. Now, we know about most of this because of reporting from Hunter Biden's laptop, which now everyone admits is authentic. But for more than a year, you were not allowed to talk about the story. And now maybe you understand why. It wasn't protecting the feelings of Hunter Biden's family or making fun of his drug addiction or seeing pictures of him with M&M stacked on his private parts. Yeah, whatever. It was about China. And that's why the media portrayed it at the time as a conspiracy theory. Watch. When you look at this uh, computer uh, store owner in Delaware who allegedly received Hunter Biden's laptop, that is more in line with it when you think about somebody who's a useful idiot. That's kind of the entry point that is kind of, a, again, a classic indicator of the potential uh, presence of disinformation. Right-wing media has been focused on Hunter Biden, this laptop uh, that intelligence mm -hmm. officials have warned or is likely Russian disinformation. Law enforcement is actively investigating whether the alleged Hunter Biden emails are linked to any foreign intel ops. The story is preposterous. So we're supposed to believe that Hunter Biden in a drunken stupor dropped off his laptop in, I guess, apparently QAnon repair office. <laughs> so again, having been a rich country for over a hundred years, Americans are not trained to think in geopolitical terms. We're not trained to think in terms of which country is more powerful than which other country? Who makes the decisions? Who's in charge? That's the way China thinks of everything. And so this story intersects with the single biggest story taking place generationally in the world. And that's the rise of China and the decline of the United States. And the Biden family participated directly in that shift of power from the United States to China. Now, in 100 years... This will all be very, very obvious. But in the meantime, do not be distracted. This is not about Hunter Biden arguing with a hooker about how much crack is on the scale. This is about our leaders, the Biden family, and not just the Biden family, selling out America, including its most precious assets, to the Chinese government. Well, kind of interesting what's happened in Sri Lanka. You have seen an entire country collapse in the last couple of days on TV because they were dumb enough to implement the green energy policies that our leaders suggested they implement. More on Sri Lanka, a fascinating story, believe it or not, after the break. Also, Tucker Carlson just went 27 minutes without a commercial break. Like, where else can you, can you see a you know, widely watched commercial TV show go 27 minutes without, without commercials? Now, of course, he lost most of his sponsors because he was a little too politically incorrect when, when he talked about Latino littering. All right? That's, uh, 
<laughs> that got Tucker into big trouble. Just uh, just imagine claiming that, that certain groups may be litter more than other groups. Now, looking at the chat, there's a funny comment about uh, Tucker's earpiece that is that the, the CIA giving him direction. I just don't think the CIA could create such a compelling show as Tucker Carlson does. I don't see the CIA as this uh, particularly hyper-competent, you know, sinister uh, organization. I think that there's probably some things it does competently, a lot of things that it does incompetently. But I, I think this desire to believe that there are federal agents behind everything is it's kind of looking to check out of reality. It's like, oh, everything's controlled, so... At least I know better than everyone else. I'm I'm smarter than everyone else. I, I don't have to actively work in this world to make it better because it's absolutely hopeless because the, the forces of evil are running everything. So effectively, there's just nothing that I can do. So I have no responsibilities. I can just kick back and have the fantasy that I'm just smarter than everyone else because I know that the CIA is behind everything. And it's just not true for, for anyone who believes that that is solace because your life's not working. And so you want to believe, ah, the reason that my life is not working, I'm so supremely talented, I have such excellent judgment, if my life's not working, it's because there are these sinister satanic forces out there holding good people like me back. Right, here are some bizarre quotes on COVID while we wait for Tucker to come out of commercial break. This is from the superb podcast, Decoding the Gurus. They devote their most recent episode to Lex Friedman and Jonathan Haidt. They call Lex Friedman the techno monk, and Hyde, of course, is the esteemed social scientist. He's so confident, as he is, to say to you that almost everything we were told about COVID was wrong. And then that leaves us with one big fat question as to why. Why and how is it that almost every single Western liberal democracy made the same mistake at the same time on the same issue around the world? Either... They're all incompetent in the same way, on precisely the same mistake, looking at precisely the same data, all coincidentally at the same time. In other words, their incompetence managed to somehow manifest itself at the same moment, or somebody was giving them, deliberately feeding them with incorrect information and somehow managing to get their compliance in selling us this incomplete information and subjugating us to comply or follow their orders based upon this incomplete information. I know what sounds more plausible to me, but one thing is for sure, now that much of the data is out, almost every single thing we were told was incorrect. Mm. So all the other countries, they all had this coordinated response, and there's only two options, that they were either all incompetent in the same way, I'm or this is all there's some coordination have been given their marching orders that's the only possible explanation sound logic sounds sound to me yeah and that was him summarizing the conversation that he had with somebody who had a previous job with pfizer and was involved in overseeing the drug manufacturer or whatnot but let's hear a little bit more of how he frames things 
these countries are all incompetent. Yeah. Now, actually, for me, the former sounds more believable than the latter. Yes. To think that every one of them in every country by coincidence yes. was incompetent mm. doesn't really make sense to me. What does make sense is that there were political pressure because we know multiple times through history, not least the invasion of Iraq and weapons of mass destruction, Absolutely. non-existing weapons of mass destruction. Yes, I remember. We know where political pressure has led to experts in their field presenting misleading or false evidence that has later been discovered to have been a lie. Scientists have turned up dead like Dr. Kelly, uh, and yet we've invaded an entire country, which is an incredibly serious thing to do. Okay, let's uh, go back to Tucker Carlson here talking about Sri Lanka. Fads. Remember the self-esteem trend in American education? <laughs> Wall Street is even susceptible to this. ESG is the latest fad on Wall Street. Now, ESG has no real definition, but in effect, it requires companies and countries to shut down their most productive sectors in the name of climate change and equity. So because of ESG, Germany is now rationing electricity. Because of ESG, farmers are in revolt in the Netherlands. But the saddest victim of ESG is Sri Lanka. Once a prosperous country right off the southern coast of India, Sri Lanka has collapsed. Inflation is over 50%. Food prices are up more than 80%. This week, Sri Lanka's president and prime minister had to flee the country. Citizens stormed their residences, went through their sock drawers and swam in their swimming pools. And it was just a few years ago that the World Economic Forum published an article entitled, and we're quoting, this is how we will make Sri Lanka rich by 2025. Weirdly, if you search that article online tonight, it's been deleted. Oh, weird, covering their tracks, but not very well. So how'd this happen? Well, in April of 2021, Sri Lanka's leaders banned chemical fertilizers. Now, 90% of the country's farms used chemical fertilizers. So what happened next? A third of Sri Lanka's farms shut down completely. Now, what happens when farms shut down? Hmm, quiz. Well, people starve. This is what the largest city in Sri Lanka, Colombo, looked like this week. That's what the Green New Deal looks like in Sri Lanka. Now, we know what you're thinking. Oh, so pampered lifestyle liberals in the United States just destroyed something else. They did to Sri Lanka what busing did to American education, just absolutely wrecked it and then walked away like it never happened. So that's the downside. People's lives were destroyed. It's happened a lot. But here's the good news. Sri Lanka has a virtually perfect ESG score. Sri Lanka scores 98 on the ESG scale, that's more than double our score here in the United States. So we're going to need to step up our efforts to shut down farms. Peter Earle is an economist who follows all this stuff. Peter, thanks so much for coming on. ESG uh, seems like the kind of idea that winds up in the pictures you just saw. This seems inevitable for any place that applies it. Yeah, definitely. And thanks for having me. Um, what you see here is what's really happening in a lot of places, which is where you have ideologies, and in particular, woke ideologies, replacing prices and markets. You get these sort of classic misallocations of resources. So 
It's what's so interesting is that these ideas come from woke Western liberals who are so painfully sensitive on questions of race. They did this to an entirely non-white country, completely destroyed the country. Will they ever admit that and learn something from it and stop doing it to the developing world or will they just move on like it never happened? I think we have a pretty good template for that in the way they treat socialism. Whenever it fails, they say, well, you know, it wasn't real socialism. I'm sure they're going to say this wasn't real ESG. This wasn't a real green policy, something like that. I mean, that's 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 the playbook. So Sri Lanka had a 98 percent ESG score. So like they won. Why aren't the people there happy? I mean, just because they're starving to death. But are there other reasons? Don't they feel virtuous and good about themselves? <laughs> uh, it doesn't seem like it. No, I have a feeling that um, you need a minimum of like 1,500 calories a day to really uh, enjoy the, the, uh, the fruits of uh, this sort of like intellectual uh, atrocity that's going on over there. I wish I had Sandy Cortez's cell. I would text her those videos and say, is it the Green New Deal comes to Sri Lanka? Are you psyched? Peter Earl, I appreciate your take on this. Thank you, because it's true. Great to be here. So we told you a story last week about a convenience store clerk in Harlem called Jose Alba, an immigrant from the Dominican Republic who was working at midnight on a Friday trying to give people lotto tickets and beer and was attacked by a violent criminal, defended himself, stabbed the guy to death. He was charged with murder. But then the girlfriend of the criminal turns out stabbed Alba. Wait, she stabbed somebody, not even in self-defense. Has she been charged? Oh, no, she hasn't. Why is that? We'll tell you next. Okay, we'll come back to Tucker after commercial interruption. Sri Lanka should be feeling a lot better because they just uh, thrashed Australia in a test cricket match. Just really did a number on the Aussies. Quite discouraging. All right, back to some hilarious quotes on COVID. But we did it on a false premise. For me, what I have experience in, what I have evidence for, is that these sorts of lies can affect entire countries and the decisions entire countries make and it's more likely that that kind of political pressure was deployed than to say every single scientist in every one of these countries made the very same mistake based on the very same incompetence and the same knowledge gap that's a bit weird yeah that's some masterclass conspiratorial reasoning there isn't it chris the first thing i'll say is that the conspiracists love to give examples of other incidents where powerful groups have been less than good with the truth but the comparisons are usually extremely weak i mean the comparison to the Gulf war yes it was a very bad thing the evidence for weapons of mass destruction was not there but that became quite clear quite quickly in the lead up to the war certainly various factors were leading to cia and intelligence and stuff like that telling bush what he wanted to hear but weapons inspectors went in and they reported back the truth became quite clear in a reasonable period of time. So that's quite a different scenario to what we're talking about with COVID, where every scientist, every medical researcher across the entire world, all working independently in their own research labs, etc. Okay, here's uh, Hunter Biden arguing with a prostitute about how much cracky he's been given. He's unhappy. He's being ripped off in a crack deal. I mean, I know that always gets me really furious. Zero seven. Man. Without the bag. It's so hard to find an honest crack dealer these days. I mean, they just don't make the, the crack dealers like they used to. It's, uh, it's pretty sad. 
We need an honest crack dealer. Are all either lying or he thinks is more probable that they've all been gotten to. And I think to a, the conspiratorial mindset, that seems plausible and it's not. So you spoke about the conspiratorial mindset. So let's see if there's another set of figures who we might be familiar with who express a similar sentiment. Brett Weinstein and Heller Hain, what have they got to say? Right. So in any case, what you've got is actually effective pharmaceuticals that we are told are snake oil. And we have something that isn't a vaccine, which we are told is a vaccine that doesn't do the two most important things that it would need to do in order to control the pandemic and to explain why they would be mandated, which is to prevent you from contracting the disease and prevent you from passing it on. Um, in other words, what you've got is the exact inverse of a recipe for protecting yourself, mm -hmm. right? You could have done the right thing for your family if only you had known that you should tune out the New York Times, the Washington Yeah, they had all these secret cures, or not so secret, all, all these uh, dissident cures for COVID, but the, the pharmaceutical companies, they just shut it down, bro. And post uh, the CDC, the Wisdom FDA, here from Brett the Weinstein. WHO, um, all the major universities right and so this is a problem because for most of us we are not equipped to look at the entire range of institutions and say they've all got it wrong i mean even my voicing that sounds perfectly insane what are the chances that all the institutions got it wrong mm -hmm. and if they did all get it wrong my point is we have to now go backwards and say well what could possibly explain that i love that same as magic all the institutions, all the medical bodies, all the governments, like Majid pointed out, they've all got it wrong. There's no other explanation why they wouldn't agree with Brett and Majid. There's no possible, it's either incompetence or it's some coordinated lie. There is no other possibility to explain why they might not agree with Brett and Majid and their cadre of alternative experts, right? Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a wonderful textbook example of motivated reasoning, isn't it? You start off with the ironclad belief that whatever, the Twin Towers were brought down by space-borne lasers or they faked the moon landing, right? Because you've figured it out. Then you try to contort your understanding of the rest of the world to fit that premise. And with Brett and Margit, it's a good illustration of why the narcissism and the conspiracy theorizing seem to go together so often. That insane level of confidence in your own belief, I think, is what the narcissism plays into. Okay, let's get back to Tucker Carlson tonight. Jose Alba came to the country from the Dominican Republic, and 30 years later... He was doing what he came to do, which is working. He's 61 years old. And yet Friday night a week ago at midnight, he was working in a convenience store in Harlem when a violent criminal walked in in a dispute over a bag of potato chips his girlfriend was trying to walk off with, assaulted the much older Alba, threw him to the ground, grabbed him by the neck. Ultimately, Alba stabbed the guy. Clear self-defense. The video's online. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's very upsetting. So then the thug's girlfriend shows up and starts stabbing Alba, not in self-defense, out of rage, which is not allowed. But the Soros-backed DA in New York, Alvin Bragg, charged Alva with murder, but did not charge the girlfriend who stabbed Alba. 
So after public outcry, Alba's bail was lowered, but he's still in home confinement. He's still facing murder charges. The video that we just got from the New York Post makes it very clear that Alba did everything he could to avoid a confrontation with this criminal. Watch this. Mo, Papa, what's up with you? I don't want to promo, Papa. Uh, what's wrong I with you? I don't do nothing I don't want a problem with you. The guy threw the old man down and then grabbed him by the neck. Now he's facing murder charges. Vita Fasella has served in Congress. He's now the borough president of Staten Island, probably the best borough. He's spoken out in defense of Alba. Vita Fasella, thanks so much for coming on tonight. Um, this, it, are we missing de- details? This seems like an incredibly straightforward example of self-defense by a virtuous guy against a thug. You're absolutely right. You know, this is wrong on so many levels. Uh, those who know the trend in New York City know that crime was on the rise. Bodegas, which this guy uh, worked at, uh, robbed almost once a day. Uh, they're in very confined spaces. They're vulnerable. They tend to be in uh, very often low-income areas. And we also know that violent criminals have been let go. They get arrested and they're back on the street. And then along comes this poor guy just earning a living uh, is threatened, assaulted, trying to defend himself. And if there's anything uh, real and right in this country is the right to defend yourself or your property. And rather than arrest the, the woman who stabbed him, this poor guy is facing 15 to 25 years in jail. So what we did uh, just a few days ago in Staten Island, some folks may not know, New York City is comprised of five boroughs, five different counties. Each borough has its own district attorney. What we said on Staten Island is that if you get attacked, if you're assaulted, you have the right to defend yourself. And while they may yeah. put you in jail in Manhattan, Staten Island, you'll get a medal. And for some reason, we have this alternative universe that's being created where the victim has become the criminal and the criminals become the victim. And what we want to say is let's get our city back, let this guy go, and let's get the violent criminals off the streets. That's our message. Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious that members of politically favored groups are just not going to be punished, no matter what. And and this Alba was not a member of that group, so he is being I'm punished. Aware this is but how can you not, if you're the DA, how can you not charge the girlfriend who also stabbed somebody and can't even claim self-defense? That's totally revealing, I think. It's It seems to be just absurd to insane, um, you know, and anybody with a half an ounce of common sense looking at this video has to feel for this guy. And as I said, rather than charge the people who initiated this, threatened him, assaulted him, are now looking to put him behind bars for up to 25 years. Something's got to give. You know, NASA is releasing its uh, web telescope uh, today or tomorrow. They're going to release images of New York City. It's a foreign land in so many pockets of this uh, community that's a great city. It's a vibrant city, but too often we've we've ceded the seat streets over to the criminals. Yeah, it wouldn't be hard to fix it. Just do the obvious. Reward good behavior, punish bad behavior. It's not hard. Vita Fasella, I appreciate your bravery. And that's, thank you. Thank, thank you, Tucker. California is the prettiest state, not just in America, but in the world. It's run by lunatics and it's collapsing. One video, you may have seen this if you haven't, prepare yourself, shows just how far it's fallen. Children wading through junkies as they get off the school bus. This is America. It's totally real. Not to be depressing, but you should see this. We can fix this. It wouldn't be hard. But we're going to show you how deep the problem is next. Okay, we'll catch that right after the commercials. Back to this terrific Decoding the Gurus episode on Lex Friedman and Jonathan Haidt. And then the conspiratorial reasoning allows you to just float off completely untethered by reality testing. Well, it's also that point that you have to discredit 
all other sources of epistemic authority, right? So all of these scientific bodies, all of these experts are saying you're an idiot or you're completely misreading the evidence and we've got billions of people vaccinated now and we've got reductions in every country where vaccines have been taken. And you need to explain why that people should ignore that. And if you start with the premise that all of all of those sources have been compromised, that's a good way to basically say, if you hear attacks, it doesn't discredit me. It means I'm getting closer to the truth. Alex Jones does the exact same thing. He says, people attack me because I'm right. People are attacking you because you're a conspiracy theorist arguing something which is not supported by the evidence. And that's the case for both Majid and Brett. Yeah, and the need to defend his standing and their brand, basically, as a far-seeing source of truth, it's directly threatened. Every RCT that comes along showing that ivermectin doesn't work is another threat to his credibility. And they quickly reach that tipping point where there's no way to back down. You just have to triple down again and again and again and keep explaining build a bigger and bigger conspiracy theory to explain why everyone else in the entire world is wrong and you're right. Yeah, and there's this thing which also Brett and Hello discuss were, and I've seen it quite recently in various conspiracy communities, particularly Lablik community and so on. They try to present it that there's no incentive for them to argue with the consensus. There's no benefit to them to take that stance. So let's just hear them explain that. Right. And, you know, it, it should also be obvious to people as they look at the supposed consensus in front of them that those who have departed from the consensus have had terrible things happen to them, right? We, all of us who have departed from the consensus who are uh, professionally trained in any regard have been dismissed as cranks and kooks and worse. We've been called grifters and all sorts of things. And so the point is, look, you know there is an incentive to stick with the conventional narrative. And then the consensus is uh, trotted out as evidence that uh, the, 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 the pattern is very clear. And anybody who you know knows how to do the analysis will reach the same conclusion that the CDC and the FDA and the WHO and the New York Times and everybody else has reached, right? But the point is, when you see an intense campaign that punishes people for stepping out of line, then you have to ask the question, what, you know, how, how durable, how meaningful? Is that a Potemkin consensus, right? Is mm. that a paper-thin consensus born of the fact that all of those <clears throat> who are capable of seeing the problem with it are afraid to say what they can see? Mm. So there's no incentive, there's no Patreon money that has been funneled to Brett. There's no anti-vax conferences he's headlined. He didn't appear on Bill Maher and get invited to talk about vaccines despite having no relevant expertise or knowledge. Yep. He didn't go on Joe Rogan multiple times. I mean, this is someone who had no academic career, no research career, no public profile of any kind before beginning to take these contrarian stances. No academic career of 
public note. He was a professor teaching in a relatively small university, so he did have an academic career, but just not... Technically. <laughs> yeah, you mean like <laughs> not an influential one. And Yeah, that's what I mean. And he did not. So he's done well out of the Evergreen crisis. He got a public profile, and he's done well in a certain segment out of covid Right. But he's increasingly associated with the anti-vaccine movement. And that's because mm. he is increasingly hanging around. Mm. I mean, we just headlined an anti-vaccine conference with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Dell. OK, the chat says, I don't get it. Is 40 being ironic? Why play Tucker Carlson? who says powerful people get together to secretly do nefarious thing things and then play guys saying it doesn't really happen. Because guess what? The world is incredibly complicated. Sometimes Tucker is right. Sometimes academics are right. Sometimes the New York Times is right. Sometimes Democrats are right. Sometimes Republicans are right, right? There's no individual. There's no party. There is no class. There's no profession that is always right, right? We need multiple points of view. The sad humiliation of the state of California continues tonight. It's accelerating. Jason Rance is a radio host in Seattle. He's got that story for us this evening. Hey, Jason. Hey, Tucker. Truly alarming video was posted to Twitter depicting San Francisco students getting off a bus at what appears to be the end of a school day, walking through a maze of drugged up, filthy homeless people who took over a sidewalk reportedly on a public transit line in the Tenderloin District. Take a look at this video. Bye, kids. Y'all get home safe, okay? Come on, man. These little kids got to walk through this crazy. Tucker, it's shocking, but not necessarily surprising, as we've seen how homeless policies, frankly, put children at risk all across the West Coast. Parents in Portland, for example, they're complaining that their kids are picking up used needles at parks. Here in Seattle, two encampments were set up on a school property. One housing a sex offender, and the school board refused to sweep. So now you've got this latest video servicing on Twitter, and it comes just days after the city of San Francisco announced that they were doing a $3 million pilot program replacing police with social workers on low-level 911 calls involving the homeless. But with the homeless getting more and more aggressive, it doesn't seem particularly safe. In fact, there's a recent incident in Los Angeles that shows really the dangers of all of this. An Olympic volleyballer named Kim Glass, she says she was attacked by a homeless man. She posted images of it on Instagram. Now, she's blaming the soft-on-crime approach to homeless crimes. But obviously, uh, I think people need to be paying attention to this. Gavin Newsom, who presides over all of this, who made it possible for mayor of San Francisco, thinks he's running for president in 2024. Totally. Del these people are delusional. Jason Rance, I appreciate all your reports from the Western United States. Thanks so much. Thanks, Doug. So a couple of years ago, Alex Stein was working in a totally different business. Then he got mad and decided to make videos on YouTube. Turns out he's hilarious and brave. If you haven't seen him yet, you definitely will see him. He'll show up at school board meetings in Texas, city council meetings in Seattle, drag shows for kids. Makes these amazing and very revealing videos. Anyway, for a brand new episode of Tucker Carlson today, we spoke to him about how he started doing this and why. Here's part of the conversation. 
The guys you make fun of all the time, like Don Lamont, who's married to a white guy that preach, you know, white supremacy is the biggest problem plaguing America. When I left that meeting, I was like a pseudo celebrity. You know, everybody was coming up to me because that's what they want. When I go to these public meetings and I act a fool, I know what I'm doing is cringe, but I'm doing it on purpose in order to kind of help the levity of the meetings. Like, yes. you know, because yes. these things are so ultra serious. All these politicians are so self-righteous and self-important. So when you go there and you mock them, it's how they treat us. They mock us, Tucker, especially, oh, you yeah. know, that's basically what we're under. We're under constant mockery and constant hypocrisy. So when I'm doing it, I'm mocking them back because you see the people that's talking and their kind of voice is trembling and they're kind of nervous. So when I do all that, the people that speak after me oftentimes are laughing and they're in a good mood. And there's another video. Don't, don't pull this one up, but there's a bunch of them. In Hawaii, I said I did the same thing, and I, you know, I was controversial in that meeting. And then they did Fox covered it, not Fox News, but the local Fox. And the person who's running the meeting said, "Well, I don't want to give Alex Stein clout, but he helped the meeting, he helped bring us together." Because in these ultra serious places, when you go and be a goofball, it's like being the class clown. You know, it kind of totally. makes the class more fun. Alex Stein, a man who will be a lot more famous than he already is. Tucker Carlson today, 7 a.m. tomorrow, Fox Nation. More news in just a moment. Okay, let's get a little bit more from an excellent podcast. You need to hear people from different points of view. This is a podcast called Decoding the Gurus, a couple of center-left academics. Big Tree and various other anti-vaccine superstars alongside Majid. That's where they are now. No. Yeah, look, and I definitely agree that the incentives, in fact, are in the opposite direction. If you take any controversial hot-button topic... It is always the contrarians, the ones that go against the mainstream, that get a disproportionate level of attention. But basically people taking a controversial establishment, sort of pro-Putin, pro-Russia, anti-NATO, anti-Ukraine stance. There are respectable foreign affairs analysts who take that position and they get a lot more attention than their colleagues that are taking the more boring stance. But what about Majid? I mean, Majid has suffered. He's a bona fide <laughs> conspiracy theorist. And it seems, as far as I understand, Chris, he's suffered professionally by being too extreme. I think his contract wasn't renewed at the radio call and show that he hosted, which was his main gig. So there's been professional consequences for him, but it took some time and also means to be seen what happens as his profile grows as an alternative commentator promoting conspiracy theories in the UK or Fowler Field. He may very well end up a David Icke style figure, or he may fade into the background. It's hard to tell, but the David Fuller is right that the contrarian IDW space, it basically never acknowledges the huge incentive structures that exist to take contrarian stances, not least of which revolve around Joe Rogan appearances. Staking out a position that is, I'm going to tell you something that nobody else will tell you, is obviously more lucrative. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a great couple of clips there, Chris. For me, though, the takeaway is, once again, just wonderful validation of our gurometer framework because... Really taking together those clips illustrated so nicely how the narcissism and the conspiratorial ideation and the undermining of other epistemic sources to enhance your own credibility is it's an interlinked complex, isn't it? These things go together. It's not by happenstance. They go together for a reason. Yeah, those characters, I think, are 
definitely towards the more nefarious end of the guru pool that we look at in part because of the level of narcissism that's on display but also because of the consequences of what they are promoting right anti-vaccine yeah. views during a pandemic that's pretty bad now the gurus matt that we're going to mm. turn to look to this week who are they who are they lex friedman is number one mm-hmm. and jonathan height i assume he's a professor Hi. How did he sneak? I wasn't <laughs> triggering your past experience living in Japan. I was just shocked to hear, Hyde, he snuck in there. We didn't announce that we were going to cover Jonathan Hyde. Mm. What's he no, doing there? He didn't say anything. Yeah, well, Lex Friedman, he has his podcast or video tube, whatever it's called, and has a lot of guests on. He has a lot of high-profile guests, doesn't he? And so we decided to look at two pieces of content one of them was a day in the life just a solo thing with lex friedman talking about his regime and his tips for productivity kind of self-helpy slightly guru-esque i suppose because it is about optimizing yourself and providing that kind of personal advice but we wanted to pick something else which was more representative of the content he produces which is fundamentally as an interviewer right so we have him interviewing jonathan height and we covered jonathan height in our decoding academia episode i think it was the last one wasn't it and yeah we enjoyed that one as i said in that episode i didn't know much about height i seem to be the only one on twitter who's not sort of all over height but i came away from that paper moderately impressed he's a good writer so it was good to hear him again yeah so i think the point to make here is and to remind people a little bit because they do need reminding on occasion that our format is we take a piece or one or two pieces of content and we analyze them. Um, We try to find pieces which are relatively representative of a person's output, but obviously when people put out tons of output, there's always going to be a certain degree of selection bias or other stuff that they do that we can't cover. And with Lex, we could have chosen an episode where he's verbally masturbating over Elon Musk or giving a metaphorical hand job to Joe Rogan, <laughs> whatever the case may be. But that felt a little bit mean, especially when we are looking at this day in the life content, which Lex put out, and that's not as normal content. And anybody doing a day in the life video, it feels a little bit cringy. And I feel like Lex knows that because of some of the things that he says in the video so it felt a little yeah Lex Friedman's got these strong controversial positions he believes in love and he thinks the Nazis are bad right here's the end of Tucker tomorrow night Hunter Biden called his stepmother Dr. Jill Biden a quote vindictive moron in newly released text is she a vindictive moron we'll investigate he also called her the forbidden word we can't assess no we'll see you next Tuesday Uh, Here's Sean Hannity. That's terrible. And thank you, Tucker. And where are the women's groups uh, outraged about that? Um, Interesting question. (laughs) Good question. Shocking. You know, hypocrisy on a a level we've never seen before. Tucker, thank you. All right, big breaking news on multiple fronts tonight out in San Francisco. Open-air drug use. Look, Look at this. It's gone from bad to worse. Now young kids are in the crosshairs. You won't believe this video. We'll show you tonight and explain. We'll also show you a disturbing video from Minnesota tonight where young kids are seen berating police officers because they were executing a search warrant 
Um, you ever wonder what's happening to our country? And more developments tonight in the case of the New York City bodega worker. He is being charged with second-degree murder despite more video evidence bolstering clear self-defense. That argument, all of that is straight ahead. But first, the walls are now officially closing in on the imploding Joe Biden presidency because as prices rise, as costs surge, as you, the American people, continue to suffer under this failing far-left extreme Biden. Okay, if Sean Hannity says anything interesting, I'll cut back to it. I've got a guest coming on in a minute. Like a slight low blow to Lex to look at that content. So we should take the high ground when we're looking at his interview. But the problem was with height, that a lot of the interview is height, as the case should be, maybe with a good interview. So it ended up when we were clipping that a lot of the clips were height themed. And it seemed like, okay, so we're going to be discussing Heights visas, Heights approach in a bunch of the content. So we're going to treat them together. Yeah, that's okay. That falls within our remit. We've done um, this before. It's a, <laughs> it's a double feature. And Height, he's an intellectual figure. He's a public commentator. He's quite well known. He falls within the bounds of being fair game for decoding the guru. We've had various requests to do an episode on Height. I think in part because of his role in the heterodox sphere and setting up Heterodox Academy, writing the coddling of the American mind and so on. And I don't think we will do a dedicated separate Height episode, at least not for some time. So this is what you get. We'll have a look at whether people's critiques of Height are fair based on this content. It wasn't supposed to be a Height episode. That's the point. It ended up a Height <laughs> episode. Yeah, well, it's half a Height episode yeah. half legs half height yeah good so we're gonna start with a day in the life and just to remind you Matt, just gotta call back as i say you are the voice of my conscience right <laughs> so this is gonna be hard for me <laughs> because lex as you'll see is something of hey, a diana how are sincerity you? monster hi i'm good Maybe we should get this nice up. to meet you it's good to it's good to meet you so great sounding good looking good so thank you thank you very much thank you for having me uh Luke, absolutely thank you so much so uh tell me about why you wrote wrote this uh new novel that just uh, just came out a few weeks ago i believe yes um wow so i felt that it was a very important human story that needed to be shared I think that there is a common uh, human struggle that many people go through. And uh, I'm a big believer in, in the power of stories and sharing them. And so I think that was really the impetus for uh, why I shared the story. It's, it's a very difficult story. So I think that was even more of a drive to be able to sort of dig deep and really excavate a lot of lived experience and to share that in a vulnerable and open way that could maybe uh, open up a pathway for other people to relate um, who have possibly experienced similar uh, situations and then ultimately to uh, provide a a vehicle to uh, share optimism so that for however difficult our lives may be, I think that we always have to hold on to the light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. Yeah. And so 
How would you describe your book to someone you you met in an elevator? So your new book is called Dispelling the Myth. How would I describe it? I would say that it's very, uh, it's definitely for mature audiences. It's very controversial. It uh, tugs at a lot of life issues. It may make one uncomfortable, but ultimately it provides a, a lot of insight and I think hope to overcome adversity and what often appears is insurmountable odds. Yeah, and so what, what got, <laughs> got you interested in Judaism in the first place? Oh, wow. So that's really a whole life story. I'm hitting 50 this year, God willing. And the first time that God came into my frame of reference, I was six years old and some Jehovah Witnesses gave my uh, family who I was living with a kid's Bible. And so I read it and I was very enchanted by this concept of heaven and peace and unity and God. And then my uh, father and his wife got into this uh, very religious Christian world. So I grew up having to read the Bible almost every day of my life for seven years. And uh, fortunately for me, I actually liked it. (laughs) But it really just became a a real uh, core and foundation for me as a human being that has remained with me for life and that will. So I had some interesting teen years and then I became a mother very young and married very young. And around that time, I, I went back to what was familiar to me, which was Christianity but it didn't feel right, if that makes sense. And so God always felt right. Faith always felt right. But trying to orient myself in a religious framework that sort of felt right for me became a very important goal when I was very young. So I also, though, began to, uh, so I was doing the Christian thing again when I was about 18 to 20 19 to 20, and then I just couldn't do it anymore. I realized that fundamentally it was not a truth that I resonated with, though I very much like Jesus. And I I love the idea of, you know, everybody has a different way of how they understand, in effect, the same truth. But um, anyway, I I was doing a lot of uh, spiritual soul searching. I I really became fascinated with a lot of uh, reading about Taoism and Buddhism and, uh, you know, uh, Native American spirituality. So I was really just taking in a lot of different world concepts. And then ultimately, Judaism just made sense uh, to me. Mostly at a spiritual soul level, but also... um, I want to say at a, on an intellectual level as well. And so I knew that this was what my soul uh, expression would best, uh, would be most compatible with. 
So you left a somewhat party lifestyle in Los Angeles. You moved to Sacramento. You moved next to a conservative synagogue, and you you embarked on a conversion to to Judaism. What were the things that surprised you initially as you start embarking on this journey to Judaism? Well, so I first started, uh, I made the commitment to become Jewish when I was 22. And so from the time that I made that determination to the time that I actually embarked on the path in Sacramento, there was seven years. So in those seven years, I did a lot of discovery and in that time was able to determine for me that I, I am a conservative person, uh, philosophically and politically, religiously. And a lot of that is also motivated from my childhood, which I was exposed to a lot of, um, I want to say extremes. And I, I, I became very averse I, to extremes. So that sort of like a continuum of my own growth as a human being that aside, for seven years, I did a lot of uh, exploration into Judaism and was able to sift out that Orthodox, uh, well, I loved the teachings because I knew them like the back of my hand to the, not all the, the 613 rules that came later, but the actual Torah. Uh, I knew that like the back of my hand, the actual, you know, doctrine and fundamentalism of it was something that I felt was a bit too much for me. And, you know, by the same token, I also felt that the reform was a little not for me. So what I ended up determining is that the conservative movement would be the best avenue for me. Though, interestingly enough, I've always, um, well, I chose that path to enter into uh, Judaism, and also I chose that path because I knew that I would be able to become a citizen in Israel uh, as a conservative Jew through the Masorti movement. There were things that I didn't know um, that I didn't find out till after the fact. Yeah, and well. How long were you going to synagogue before married men started hitting on you? <laughs> um, that's a funny question. Um, I feel like maybe that just seems like a problem that might be endemic. <laughs> um, to Maybe it's parcel and it's to men in general. There are good men and bad men and... and um, you know, I guess I've known my share of both. <laughs> right. But most people who don't know synagogue life well would be kind of surprised that a house of God married men are hitting on you. You weren't surprised when that, that happened? Well, when I was young, I want to say I was. Maybe I'm responding from an older, jaded, been there, done that point of view. But yes, when I was young, I was very stunned by the fact that behavior that was uh, exhibited by people like I would expect that at a you know a rave or a club not at a synagogue <laughs> so yeah there were a lot of interesting um, discoveries along the way for sure now 
I know another beautiful convert to conservative Judaism, and she told me that she was surprised that the Jewish men don't know their level. She was surprised by all these, you know, loser Jewish guys who are hitting on her while in, in non-Jewish life, you know, guys have a better better read for, for women who are appropriate for them or not. And so part of a kind of admired the confidence of these, these Jewish the losers. Yeah, the, the, moxie, the Yeah, the moxie yeah. that they, they were hitting on her. But a large part of her was just like, come on, don't you know that, you know, I'm way out of your league. So did you, did you experience that uh, Jewish chutzpah? Well, oh, wow. So if I'm being honest, and I think that's what you want, um, and I like to be that way anyway, I would say that, and this is a generalization, because I don't like to, it's a broad generalization, but in my experience, and we're looking now at almost 28 years of being in Jewish circles, I have found that Jewish men tend to be very chutzpahdik, and it largely is dependent upon how much money they have. Yeah. I don't know how else to say it. So I have, for whatever reason, I guess a lot of Jewish men with some degree of, you know, green um, have not ever really had uh, any, uh, like, they've been very glad to hit on me and just be dazzled or whatnot. <laughs> Another thing that I notice about Jews is that they tend to be much more open with their passions. So if they, what way? well, if they want sex, they're, they're much more, you know, obvious about it. If they want money, they're much more obvious about it. If they want fame, if they want honor, if they want attention, if they want to make you laugh, it just seems like Jews and Judaism both have much more sense of comfort with the natural passions. While from the, the Protestant upbringing that I had, it was much more about repressing your emotions because if you didn't, it, it might show that you didn't have a good relationship with Jesus. Very Victorian, very beautiful point. Okay, so backtracking again. So I spent like my entire social circle growing up, say for a, and growing up, but I mean, by growing up, I mean my 20s, was Jewish Hollywood liberal types. And they are, I tell you, they, they're the wildest, the most liberal, the most, you know, I mean, yeah. they know how to thrive. If you're into like a, a very hedonistic, secular lifestyle, you want to hang around with rich Hollywood Jews because they're the most decadent <laughs> yeah. and they have the most money. So, yeah, it's very true. So that's the kind of people I used to roll with. Now, I had a few more, you know, innocent type friends that, you know, in a, in a different way that I also were my friends. But when it came to my that was my party life. So that's who I hung out with in my 20s was a bunch of wild, decadent liberal ungodly jews <laughs> did you ever encounter bill cosby thank god no maybe someone like him unfortunately but thank god not him no and there's this horrifying story in the novel about someone spiking your drink and yes. you know, taking you out of state and, and raping you had that ever happened to you before no it did not and that you know, I, I appreciate the ease with which you uh, share that. And 
I also appreciate the fact that I'm able to really just talk about this stuff now. But uh, you asked, like, what kinds of things are shocking? And quite frankly, that, because you have to understand, I hung around a lot of party lifestyle, and I never was hurt. You know, I was around people that would serve, you know, <laughs> drugs on a silver platter, but they had your back, if that makes sense. So I don't want to say I'm naive. I'm certainly not now, but in my 20s, I guess I just hung around people that I knew. So I was never going to get hurt. So even though I was in largely very doing very, you know, not the most safe things and, you know, leading a very wayward life, as it were, I guess I was around people that were never going to hurt me. Yeah, and you so, were hanging out in Hollywood with, with party people, with people doing drugs, with, with very decadent people, but you had to convert to Judaism, go to Kiddush for the first time that you get raped. Yeah, and so you got to understand, yeah, I'm having a very wild life, never once got hurt, and here's the thing, you're hanging around with all these wild people and your friends, but nothing happened that you didn't want to happen and often i was just a person who used to just enjoy dancing and and you know being high so but i you know had a good time and i knew how to but it was like i never ever got hurt so i didn't have that frame of reference it's like you know this is why the tagline in my novel you just don't know until you know because you can really apply that to everything in life really but Unless you have an experience, it's kind of not in your field of reference. But once you have an experience, then you're aware of the possibility that it can happen again. And so before that experience happened, no, I and and I'm not exactly like foolhardy and just, you know, whatever. I, I think that I just, yeah, it was really awful to think that you go to a shul and it, not, not some, you know, decadent, orgy, Hollywood liberal rave, but a shul at like 12 o'clock in the afternoon in some kind of deadbeat city. Sacramento is not, you know, fast-paced L.A. And you just agree to go have a glass of wine and then um, something really horrible happens to you. Yeah, it yeah. would not occur to most Hollywood people, even the most decadent, it would not occur to most pornographers, it would not occur to the most drug dealers, it would not occur to most pimps to put a mickey in a woman's drink and, and rape her. I mean, you, you had to go to shul to, to meet someone this incredibly creepy. And at the end, he tells you, you know, just just remember that you're you're nothing, you're, you're a shiksa. And I'm curious, did you encounter that attitude before with Jews that you met in Hollywood, for example? No, no. First of all, Hollywood Jews are so divorced from Judaism, they don't really care. For them, it's like they, if they had to get, you know, bar mitzvah at 13, it was because they had, it was a big party kind of thing. So they were not very religious, but with, yes, with that situation, I feel like, um, I, I don't know. It was really, uh, I'm almost 50 in a few months. So I would have to say that I've been through, been there, done that. And with that experience comes a lot of personal self-confidence, if that makes sense. Yes. But 
at 32, I don't know that I had that self-confidence. I might have been able to front it, if you will. But I, you know, like me hearing that, I really took that and felt bad about myself. And I was this outsider and didn't really fit in. And it really did play into my psychology 100% because I didn't have the... I, I had a lot of issues to still work out and something like that only actually sent me over the edge. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you had to go to synagogue to meet someone who would rape you and then tell you that you're nothing because you're, you're not Jewish. Like no, no Hollywood Jew would say that you had to meet a putatively religious Jew at a synagogue at a kiddish to be told that you have absolutely no value and no worth and no one's going to believe you is that fair yeah and that there's a lot of dynamics as i understand it though so there's the idea that you're dealing with a very brash cruel awful human being that also just feels that they can treat women like dirt and that they have money and so i think that the ugliness of the human being transcends the fact that he is Jewish. I think that if he was not Jewish, he would still be that same ugly human being. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. 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 But uh, this, this... It's just unfortunate mm -hmm. that I... It, it's just a very unfortunate thing, but because this thing happened, it really deeply impacted my spiritual path. And... Uh, yeah, it really, really deeply uh, marred and impacted my, my path. How frequently did you encounter Jews who had the attitude that you were just a shiksa and that you had no, no ultimate value? Was this the only that person? Was the that was the first time. First of all, again, all through my 20s, uh, no, um, most Jew, again, I hung around with a lot of party Jews. Most of them were fascinated. I was just even interested in Judaism because they really were not. <laughs> so they would, they were my friends, you know? So no, um, I'd never experienced that before personally, but ever since then I have, and it's always from religious Jews. Religious Jews are not always the nicest people. It's kind of interesting. You really are an outsider and uh, particularly with uh, there's it's it's a highly politicized and environment, I think uh, on par only with how horribly polarized uh, our country is and the world is at present. But it's just a very hyper politicized environment, and so. Yeah, ever since I decided to convert to Judaism, I always found myself in the. Um, Jewish genealogy game. Everyone's always trying to figure out what kind of Jew you are and if you're really a Jew without really saying it. And and eventually I got very put off by like, you know, if you're not, if you didn't convert Orthodox, you can't touch the wine because you contaminate it. It's just, it's just, it got to be all a bit much for me, quite frankly. And, and then you get to to meet a, an Orthodox rabbi who I presume is your, your your sponsoring Orthodox rabbi who holds all those strict views about kosher, but he doesn't hold strict views about eating you out. So I, 
really uh, went through a phase of self-doubt because of this horrible thing that happened during my conservative conversion process, which made me be, you know, self-analyze and think that maybe I should have just gone orthodox. And so what I did was determine I'm going to convert orthodox. And I also said, I at least have to give it a try to know the difference. Maybe I was wrong about orthodoxy because that is a a remaining feature of my character is that I'm always willing to introspect and figure out if perhaps I'm wrong about something and maybe revisit a situation. Maybe I was too close-minded as it were. So because of that, I determined I'm going to convert Orthodox to find out whether it's true. Like, is Judaism true? I need to know. And it would just so happen that, uh, yes, so I met a very learned rabbi, but uh, lines were crossed. And um, I became involved with him and it was a very uh, a very bad thing. So ultimately, I determined that I had to break off from that, and I went to Israel, where I was going to continue my conversion in Israel. But ultimately, I I think about three months before I was supposed to finalize the uh, conversion, I just canceled everything. Right, and. Uh... Do you do you think that you were the first uh, woman going through a conversion under this particular rabbi who ends up going to bed with him? Of course, yeah. And you know, I, I felt very. It was all very illicit and guilty and confusing, and it was an incredibly complex situation for me, um, spiritually and mentally. And it also was very reminiscent of a very bad childhood that I grew up with. So there was a lot of complex layers involved. And uh, yeah, so it was personally like, I just didn't like being so dubious and devious. And it just wasn't the kind of person that I wanted to be. But then so many things uh, came about. And I discovered that this is a pattern, not only with that individual, but it's even like a larger pattern. And it just became like, in other words, my, I'm very aware now of things that maybe at one time I was naive and innocent about. But uh, you, you told your truth. You, you told this story about what happened when you were converting to Orthodox Judaism and your rabbi takes you to bed. You, You told other rabbis about this. But uh, I don't believe they ever disciplined this particular rabbi. He can keep uh, being being a predator. He can keep his position teaching Torah. He's still the, the holy man in the community while he's simultaneously taking women who are not his wife to bed. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, okay. So, yeah. So I told uh, two big rabbis and I told them the entire truth and abandoned the process. But what I believe happened is, on the one hand, they limited him, but this is behind the scenes because of what they knew. On the other hand, uh, like in many instances when powerful men, we just, we protect them. 
we hide, we lie for them, we protect them. And so that he was able to continue to go about his business and do as he does. And then of course, I just become some non-existent no one. And I've maintained contact with this person over the years, by the way. And, and, um, I find, and I, including up to letting him know that I wrote this book and he was not very happy about that at all, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can, I can imagine, but, uh, I mean, this rabbi is so ingenious that whatever restrictions they, they put on him. He knows I, how to talk his way out of it. Yeah. He'll just say, oh, she's crazy. She yeah. made it up. He's a very manipulative person. He's very intelligent and he's very, uh, you know him. So yes. I don't have to tell you what you don't know. And I don't hate him. And I let him know that, by the way, I don't hate you. I I really had to, for my own sake and soul growth and personal growth, really do a lot of intensive healing work in order for me to put all of these these things in perspective and be able to say, that's the past and here's the present and I don't have to carry my past into my present, but I also did have to reconcile it. And so part of reconciling it was writing this book. Um, again, he's very displeased with the book, but I let him know, you know, and I didn't need your permission to write my story. And um, he'll he'll get out of it because he knows how to just, oh, she's crazy. She, you know, he's just, he is who he is. And I don't hate him, but it's part of the lived experience that I've had. And I thought it was important to share and not to disparage him, God forbid, but to tell a story about a truth. And that's what I said to him. I said, it's like the Bible. It says all the ugly parts. It's yeah. not a vanity. It's not a vanity project. And I think since you've taken the time to read it, you know that it's, it doesn't paint the protagonist who is as you know, <laughs> me, it doesn't paint me in a very nice light. It's, it's not a vanity book. It's a story. And I really do think it's a powerful human story that says there's a lot going on in this world. And ultimately, you know, what do we do as people when we are faced with predicaments? How do we deal with them? How do we heal? What is God? What is religion? Like, it, they're very complex issues that we grapple with as human beings. Yeah, and I've I've been uh, I've been pretty pretty unattractive in, in my dealings with women over the course of my life. Uh, for for many years, I was just uh, out of control, sex and love addict, and and I would just have this sense. When when I'd go to a party or a social event, like which women I could get into bed without too much trouble, like because I was always very lazy about it, and so predators just have have a sense for prey, and so they don't they don't choose the strong, powerful woman who's you know really well connected. They they choose someone who is vulnerable, and so the these rabbis these men were picking up on your vulnerability and reacting mm. reacting to it like a hyena to prey is that fair that is 100% very psychologically astute so for example if i was the woman i am today 18 years ago and before <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, but, but, you know, yeah, so I was very beautiful when I was younger, and, but very vulnerable, very vulnerable, a lot of deep seated insecurities. And you're right, and they can smell it a mile away and just pray. Now, it's a whole different ball game, but absolutely 100%. Yeah, I mean, the only reason that I didn't go to bed with certain attractive women is that I just lo lost confidence at times, or I just didn't want the the aggravation or the complications that would come with it. But otherwise, you know, my radar would just be be picking things up, and it was it was stronger than I was. I mean, I converted to Judaism to try to control my my sex sex life, my my sex urges, and and it just didn't work. It just you know started taking place in shore. Not not the actual sex, but the, the 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 whole the whole pickup scene. Now you there's a Orthodox outreach center that uh, sent you to Israel, and uh, there was a special conversion program there for women, which was ah, so nice of them. So t tell me about that that experience on the compound. So. You know, so it's, it's, you know, all human beings were all very complex, right? So yeah. on the one hand, you know, yes, I had issues and vulnerability and, you know, insecurities. But on the other hand, I, you know, worldly and street smart. And, you know, I hadn't really fully blossomed into the just strong, you know, badass I am today. Kidding. <laughs> um so when I went there, I mean, I'm thinking I'm just going to go to this, you know, all women's conversion program, and I'm okay with that, and that it's just going to be a really neat program of learning and growth and like a, a spiritual thing. And it was quite a nightmare. And I just, one thing about me, I am a fighter and a survivor, and uh that's how I've been my whole life, and that's how I'll always be. So I arrived on scene at a very out-of-order situation, and I just I couldn't deal with it. Um, it was like a, a just a, a not even a compound. It was like just the middle of the hills. Um, some I almost feel like put together, you know, metal pieces that you were supposed to call a room and I mean, just the whole thing was so sorted and out of order, and it was disheartening. And and I felt very hurt, uh, very hurt and pained for the other young ladies who they were a lot younger than me. I was thirty two at the time; they were like twenty to twenty three ish in that range. And I felt very hurt for them that I presumably they're there in good faith and just you know so innocent and seeking God and to have been dumped on this uh, situ in this situation and just completely preyed upon. I just felt really bad for them. So yeah, that was a, a big shock and surprise. That was not at all what I anticipated or expected. And I was not happy with it at yeah, all. Yeah, it was, it was billed as yeah. a conversion program for, for women, but it was really a slave labor camp. Very much so. And it was very off-putting because you had these uh, young ladies in this very, this situation of squalor that was just not dignified for any human being, while the lady, um, you know, attractive lady, well-dressed, you know, had money. Clearly, it was her racket. It was a racket. And I don't know that 
that uh, you know the person, the the man at age who was very involved. With he her, knew. Um, he knew. I, I know that guy's gotten he, into he, other trouble. So yeah, he knew. has. He had. Yeah. I haven't. Yeah. I haven't spoken to him in in years. I haven't had contact with him, so I really don't know what he's up to in recent times, and I haven't had a reason to try to dig and find out, but. At the time, I was stunned, like, really? He's, you know, putting his money here? Are you kidding me? And by the way, he was the first person who enlightened me about something. I was uh, wanting to go to Israel, and he let me know, you should do it here because you're not going to be able to get married in Israel as a conservative Jew. So he is the first person who enlightened me about that, and I didn't... Uh, like they don't give you that in the brochure at the Masorti movement, you know, and I'm a kind of person I like, I need to know all the facts because I'm fully, I'm willing to own my decisions, whatever they are, but based on facts, if you don't give me all the facts, how am I supposed to make an accurate decision? Now, had I known that in advance, you know, like I might've like, like it's, it's always like, you have to really know all the facts. So they didn't tell me that. So when he told me that, well, I was already, you know, on the plane in Israel, basically. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Just, just a horrifying story. I mean, people have to read the, the book, Dispelling the Myth, to get more of the details. Now, you leave the compound and you go to, go to a place where you meet a girl you call it Jessica. And she started out at age 14 as a babysitter for a rabbi with 11 kids. And yeah. and she starts a, a sexual affair with this rabbi at age 14. And he, when it's discovered, he leaves, eventually he leaves his wife. He's ostracized from the, the community. He leaves Judaism. And she is just in a catatonic state. Do, do you know what yes. ever happened to her? I don't. It was really, so I was dealing with my own stress and yeah. overwhelm. And, you know, then I walk into this room and I don't know if you're familiar with like the absorption centers in Israel, but they're, you know, I mean, it's not a tent. It's not the most, it's just, they're very, it is what it is. And so when I walk into the room and I quickly figure out how uh, really unstable she is, I just, I'm like beyond stressed out. And during the very brief time that we were like, you know, we passed and, you know, between me meeting her and walking into that really bad situation and getting into a different room, um, I just learned all the information that I did because that rabbi told me. And by the way, he's the one that told me, don't become orthodox. Yeah. He also was like, you don't want to do it. I'm telling you, it's it's not good. So, and he's like, I was born Jewish. I'm, you know, like, like, yeah, I'll never forget. So I didn't ever know what happened to her. I just know that at that time she was a very young girl and I just saw that she was just completely confused, wrecked. She was a psych ward case. It was really sad. Yeah, the worst thing about being troubled is that you tend to attract other troubled people. And so there's this underlying theme of suicide people on the verge of suicide or through your book and so you are struggling with your own psyche and with your own misery and then as a result you attract predators and people who are who are prey and, and that's that's kind of the 
the the really unfortunate dynamic because I've experienced it myself. When I've been down, I attract down people. When I am losing at life, I, I attract losers. When I am at my most distraught and, and troubled, I primarily attract people who are distraught and troubled. And you keep coming across people who are on the verge of suicide, like uh, that young Jewish girl who fell in love with a Palestinian boy. Yeah, that was another really interesting story. So I, in the time that I was there, I really explored Israel um, through and through from, you know, culturally, politically, just every way. And, uh, you know, I've always loved Kabbalah, metaphysics. So I was very excited to go to uh, Sfat. And it was an incredibly enlightening experience because, you know, there's this whole mythos, if you will, about the mystical city. And I was a little bit jarred by my discovery of how absolutely mundane, you know, it was in part. But there was a beautiful uh, service on Shabbat, uh, Kabbalat Shabbat that, that weekend. And anyway, we were all in this room. And yes, and you begin to learn about all these things of Israel, like you know, the, the apartheid, and, you know, if I say that, I mean, there's a lot of people that don't want to hear that, but I lived there for 13 months. I know what I saw and experienced. And then you, all of a sudden you understand things that you could never even conceive of until you learn it. But yes, like this young girl grows up in a Jewish home, falls in love with a Palestinian boy, they get pregnant, have the baby, but you know, there's so much animosity and hate that they're like a, they're like a sad Romeo and Juliet tale. So there were very sad stories that were very eye-opening and profound that you discover, you know, in the 13 months that just, you know, wow, they really open your eyes. And for me, by the time I was six months into it, that's when I knew I'm done. You know, it's, this is not the path for me. <laughs> And on Motsi Shabbos, you encounter a, a Kalabakh group uh, seance where you know, people are naked and I presume people are doing drugs. And that must have been quite a, an interesting experience in Jerusalem. Well, yeah, it's there's a lot of the juxtaposition of the holy and profane is a really profound thing if your expectation is that you're in the holiest city in the world. And so the naivety that I brought with me to Israel was, oh my God, I'm in the land of Israel, the promised land, the holiest city in the world. And I guess in some ways that innocence didn't really connect the even remotest possibility that there's a lot of unholy things that are happening in Israel, particularly in Jerusalem where I live. And so for me to, you know, you're in the old city and you're, you know, there's a, you know, the Western wall and there's all the beautiful things about Israel, but then you, like you'd leave, you can leave a shul and, you know, or a service and then you mosey along the way. And yeah, you happen upon like some sort of, you know, sorted decadent experience uh, that you would expect to have like back in the day, in the rave days in L.A., not, you know, in the holiest city in, in the world. Now, there's a movie that came out in 2018 called Together, and it sort of gives a self-serving presentation of rabbinic predation. So people can watch the movie and 
they can they can feel the the false section of the narrative but anyway there's a an actress fairly well-known actress lola kirk who essentially plays a version of you what was that like for you to see a, a distorted version of your story put up on the big screen well here is the story with that so i used to at the time i was in la like i i've always been a movie person my whole life so i used to um you know before movies come out you can you rate them you review them and they're tested in like these private audiences so i used to be on that racket and enjoyed it very much and so it all happened very surreptitiously. I was just showing up one day at like what I didn't know was any, I had no idea what the material was going to be because that's part of how this works is, you know, the title of the movie and that's really it. It's all a very hush hush thing. So I didn't know anything about it. And when I showed up to this uh, event, it was uh, held at a private mansion in Beverly Hills. And, um, as the movie goes, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, and I'm a person who can uh, play things off really well. So, you know, no one else would have known what I was thinking when I was watching this, but I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? So I have, uh, the last time I physically saw uh, Wolfie was a long time ago. I wanna say maybe 11 years ago. It's been a very long time. And I tried to make contact with him up until a certain point, um, very sporadically, but he was very cold to me. So I'm the type of person, you don't need to tell me twice to go away because I will. So, um, so there was a big gap between the last time I'd ever had any remote contact with him and me just surreptitiously happening upon this movie. And I was very stunned, like why he would do that. Um, I wanted to know. So I actually contacted him, but he, he was not amenable to a discussion. Yeah. So I, I, dro I dropped it. But I, I wanted to know, like, why would you do this? And clearly it's, if you read my book, clearly his version is not exactly uh, the truth, but it's not, but it does pair my version enough that you can tell it's the same story, if that makes sense. You know, if that yes. makes sense. Yes. Yeah. If, if people, people watch it, watch the movie and, and read the book, they can, they can see the difference between the, you know, the Talmudic uh, story and the, the reality under, underneath it. So, I mean, you essentially had an emotional affair with perhaps the most powerful and influential rabbi in America. What was that like? Well, you know, so when I met him, I, I was very taken with him. Um, but I think that there again, um, you know, I'm just one of, I was just one of many. <laughs> You know, like, like these guys, I mean, this is how they roll. You know what I'm saying? Like you're yes. just, you just think that you're just so special, but you're just, you're not that special. And in fact, I'm very much the kind of like, I'll, I'll go back to something that in fact, uh, Rabbi Bloom said to Mary, 
don't ever tell someone again that you're low maintenance because <laughs> you're not. So I'm a lot of work, I guess. And um, yeah, I learned apparently that, yeah, like he being Wolfie would never have wanted to deal with that because I'm just a lot of work. And then anyway, though, over time, I realized myself like he and I could be not more ideologically opposed. I mean, just ideologically opposed. So it really, if it hadn't, if we would have never gotten anywhere, and I think it was all just really this sort of, um, I feel like he's a magician, an illusionist, and he's really good at sort of like a, a hypnotist type thing where he can really fool people. And I think I just got drawn into that. I don't know how else to say it. Does that make sense? Yes. And uh, there, there are people. I was drawn in this... into the mm -hmm. illusion, mm -hmm. Luke, and he's really like he's a he's an illusionist. So I was drawn into the illusion, and and really, and you know, I pride myself on being very insightful and just sort of seeing right through. But I was drawn into the illusion because he is very good at that. He's a mastermind at it. But and he, he's also gotten away with a bunch for years. But I think what's happened with him is that over time also people are knowing and uh he's not that innocent as i believe you know and as i know but yeah. that's how i look at it in hindsight is that i was really sucked into that illusion and yeah yeah i know a, a beautiful woman who got into an affair with with a leading cantor in, in los angeles and she was just kind of amazed at the strings that he could pull like she became so frightened by this guy because he was so connected in in Hollywood and it, it, with with power brokers you know he, he could seemingly you know do anything and she she just became absolutely scared to death so i mean when when yeah. when people have power and and they feel like they can get away with it they tend to try to get away with it but one interesting point is that there are a lot of people who saw right through Wolpe and you also were given feedback that this is not a good man. But I didn't see through him then. Now I, I, it's different. Right, but, but people were telling time, you, was, people were telling yeah, you and you couldn't, and you was, couldn't hear it. Yeah. And what was so bizarre, it wasn't just one person. And so I clearly was not paying attention to what I think is like, you know, God gives us signs and warnings and like, are you going to listen? And I clearly was not. Now, no one knew of my uh, friendship or, you know, emotional involvement with him. That was a very private thing. I didn't share that with anyone. But of course, for some reason, and, and I'm not the type to like, oh, I don't always tell people who I know or what I know. And I can be a little sneaky that way. So I... Uh, <laughs> So people would, for whatever reason, kind of like what you said with, I was attracting all these, like, you know, like the crazy girl or this or that, these situations. Well, same thing. Like I kept attracting all these people that would just tell me about him. And I would be like, why are they telling me about him? You know? And so never, not one person ever said anything nice to me about him. Not one. Yeah. And there's another fascinating aspect to the story, and that is Jewish Journal columnist Danielle Barron, who a year before his divorce, like just enters his family, writes this glowing 
cover story, you know, praising the beauty and the, the grace of his wife and how wonderful this family is. She writes repeated stories on, on Rabbi Wolpe, you know, how, how mesmerizing he is. And uh, then after these stories come out, Rabbi Wolpe gets a divorce and starts dating uh, Danielle Barron. That's quite a, an interesting story. She's, she's half his age and she's about four inches, five inches taller than he is. So what's so bizarre about that is I, how she entered my frame of reference literally in 2009, maybe about six months after I met him. And why? Because I was dating this guy and he picked up a Jewish journal he had at his house and it was a very weird thing. And so that's the first time I heard about her, but I didn't know her or think about her ever again until I want to say uh, in 2011, when I uh, is when because I'm good at connecting dots. I just realized, ah, she's the girl from the Jewish Journal. You know, when it, the last time I saw Wolfie, it was at an event at his shul, and I went, ah, that's the girl. Like I connected the dots. There again, I never really bothered with her because I didn't know her. Why would I care? But it wasn't again until a year a year later when the person who did this horrible thing to me in Sacramento just like gave me all kinds of dirt, like more than I put in the novel, but <laughs> like they just told me a bunch of stuff. And I, that's how I found out a lot of stuff that I didn't know. And you had and it. so go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, and so that's when I was like, oh, okay. And so that's when I found out all the things that you said. And essentially, it just seems like she be she be, fell. The way I understand it is, she became obsessed and really fell in love with the guy, and sort of has been hanging on to him like her all this time. And um, but somehow around the time of that movie thing. I, I guess she'd always been very aware of me and I don't know why, because I really haven't had any connection with Wolfie for years. So I don't know how she would even have wind of me, except that he had to have told her. Well, well, no, because you went to an event where he, he was either directing a panel or he, he was speaking and his it was eyes. Abby, it was Abby, you know, what's her name? I can't say Abby her last yeah, it's his friend, yeah, but yeah. yeah, she had just come out with a book, so he was doing a panel. Now, I was in town because I was living in Sacramento at the time managing a tax office, but I came down to L.A. because Oren was the ambassador at the time, and they had a big to-do at the Hilton. And so I went to that, and then since I was in town and they were having this panel, um, I think it was the next day, I'm like, let me just go and check it out. So I went, and that's when... I saw, uh, I saw her and I went, ah, okay. So she, I said, there's something going on here. But I said, that's the girl from the Jewish Journal. And it wasn't until a year later when I was told more than I ever wanted to know about a bunch of stuff. And I just, not, most of the dots were filled in for me. But then I started to fill in a couple that were, I just like went, oh my God. So I became enlightened, if you will. Yeah, but at that oh. event where you last uh, saw Wolfie, he was looking at you and she yeah. followed his eyes. 
and was just irresistibly drawn to get up from her seat, walked to the back to try to figure out, you know, who is, you know, Rabbi Wopi staring at. Yeah. So she was, yeah. So she was doing her little notepad thing and, you know, yeah, fixated on the guy. And I'm a very, you know, situationally aware person. I'm just looking at everything. And she, she, yeah, she literally got up, walked to the side and she was just like looking at me and looking at him. And I went, okay, she's just trying to figure out what's going on. So maybe that was the point when I entered her field of frame of reference and ever since then she's trying to figure it out and i think there's not a lot to figure out because i didn't have a uh, a physical relationship with him uh there was a you know pseudo emotional relationship but it wasn't it it really honestly it wasn't i i don't want to diminish it but i wasn't the only one yeah yeah if that makes sense. Yeah. And Although I don't know if he writes movies about other people he knows. <laughs> I Maybe I might be the only one for that, but which really disturbed me because why would you write a movie, like include me in this, you know, movie? And I, obviously it's his friends and they're connected and somehow he just decided to add that tidbit in. But it's like, why would you do that? That's weird. Well, to kind of spin, spin, a story that uh, could otherwise be be damaging and everyone wants to see themselves as a as a hero so he got to, especially him yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting like if you take 10 synagogues and they have the opportunity to to hire a rock star rabbi who will pack in the congregants who will get the synagogue enormous media attention and buzz uh, but the, the downside is that this is, you know, a rabbi who's not a good person. I don't know. Eight out of ten, nine out of ten synagogues will hire the, the rock star is not a very good person. Because it's a business. And yes. that's the part that's a turnoff. And that's yeah. the part where, for me, I was able to say, you know, God and religion are very different things. And often they don't have anything to do with each other. Sometimes they do but often they don't. And the thing too is, is just, you know, recognizing that there was a bizarre thread though, you know, because I didn't find out that all these bits and pieces. So I started out in Sacramento with actually solidifying a Jewish process that I had committed and vowed to do eight years prior to that. And then this horrible thing happened and it really just tainted my spiritual process but then all these years and all these more experiences happen and unfold. And in some bizarre way, 10 years later, it all just like, like it was tied up and it all like all these people were connected. It was bizarre. I did. How did I know? So that's kind of a fascinating thing about the story. And this, the Sacramento synagogue, it prominently honors this rapist. And I, I guarantee you, you weren't the first, you know, they, they prominently honor a, a serial rapist who meets women at Kiddish and drops a Mickey in their their drink, you know, hauls them off to another state, you know, rapes them re- repeatedly. And this is the guy that they're honoring. And they're only going to take down his name. And they're only going to take down his plaques when they're absolutely forced to, if there's, you know, an ungodly amount of media attention. Until then, they just want to keep his dirty money and uh, keep honoring a serial rapist. Well, Luke, that 
that sounds true, but here's the other thing. I didn't uh, make this public. And I did file a restraining order on him, so there are public records, but like what I did was hide it under the carpet, you know, the, the sweeping under the carpet. So yes, I filed a restraining order and for six years he was banned from that shul. Now, a year after this happened, I left. So there's no telling that he didn't go to the shul the whole time, but he was banned from that shul legally for six years under this restraining order. And then the other thing, Luke, is that, um, uh, whenever he was no longer banned and he gave a lot of money to this synagogue, um, you know, and because of that, it's like a trade-off. I give you $3 million, you get a big plaque. That's how it works. So he not only got a plaque, but this like life-size portrait of him in this library. So that was very stunning to see, but they're going to all know now, but at that time, none of them knew, you know, and I'm not saying even that some of Taft's friends don't maybe know, like it, who knows who he told, but it, it was very, uh, like, it's not something that I made public. Yeah, but you, you I, weren't the yeah. first person that he raped. I mean, this, I, I guarantee you, there are other people in Sacramento who were aware no, that this man's a serial rapist. Yeah, no, he's a sleaze bag. Um, you know, it's not my fault. I didn't beg for it. I, you know, I, it was 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the afternoon, sitting down, having a glass of wine. I, and, you know, like, no, it's not my fault. He's not a good human being. And yes, I, you, he's just not a good human being. You know, that's something he himself told me that, uh, so Wolfie's, it's also bizarre, but Wolfie's ex-wife, her mom used to be his boyfriend. And as he told me, Wolfie's ex-wife can't stand him. She hated him. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just feel like, yeah, the guy has a lot of money and gave a lot of money to the shul. So he can, he's inoculated. He can do whatever he wants. And, you know, if I would have said something, woe is me because then I would have probably been really discouraged but I for whatever reason took it upon myself not to say anything and a lot of that was me you know a lot of it was my upbringing you know I grew up in a kind of culture that it was a culture of you know like almost like the omerta code you know you don't talk and and then you also grow up in this culture where women, you, it, it's a lot of it was very cultural as well. So for me, it was best just to sweep it under the carpet and move on. And also the stigma of I'm a shiksa and I'm the outsider and I'm just bringing all this trouble to the shul. And so I didn't want to like put that spotlight on me, if that makes sense. Yeah. And had you seen Rabbi Wolpe prior to the first time you went into Sinai Temple? Because you had a sense that you'd, you'd seen or that you knew this guy the first time that you went to Sinai Temple. I don't, not to my conscious knowledge. Right. Not to my conscious knowledge. The first time I saw him physically is what I believe to be the first time. But interestingly enough, like when I was in Israel, um, uh, you know, like a lot of the 
circles and things I was doing there turned out to be big donors at his synagogue and and then some lady I met who actually used to be Kirk Douglas's cook gave me a book that it turns out uh and it's like the proof of the book. It's the only one in existence, by the way. And I asked him to ask Kirk Douglas, who, you know, at the time was still alive to sign. And so there was a lot of weird coincidences. But to my, I mean, I was only at Sacramento for a year, just over like for 14 months. Uh, no, actually for just under 18 months before I left. So I was maybe 17 months in total before I left Sacramento and that I was at the Mosaic Law. So to he, I never saw him there. I know that much, but I don't think so. Like, where would I have seen him? Except that he did seem very familiar to me. That's what's odd. Probably TV. You've probably seen him on TV or the internet. You know what it is? It's because I used to work for some rich Jew in LA who was really into uh, Christopher Hitchens. And, yeah. uh, and so if I had to do work with this guy, then I knew about Sam Harris and then they did videos. That's what it is. That's yeah. why he seemed familiar. So I didn't ever personally meet him or see him, but it has to have been those videos or something. I don't know, because I could, I'm like, where did I see him before? He wasn't, he obviously didn't stand out to me then, but I just remembered that has to be it. <laughs> yeah, Pe people are so complicated because Danielle Barron is best known for exposing all these predatory males, famous, powerful men who've hit on her in, in an uncouth way. But it would never occur to her to write about her own you know, predatory ways. Like it, we're all kind of attuned to see the predators in others, but we don't really want to face up to the predator in us. You know, I, I don't want to, uh, to, she's, you know, we all have to learn and grow in our lives. And I, I definitely, because of the fact that I discovered so many things and uh, learned that maybe she was a little bit interested in me in ways that I didn't understand, like why so, I began to dig into her as well. And Listen, I, you know, we all have to heal and resolve things. And it seems like maybe she needs to do that as well. Yeah. I mean, she comes I mean, she's from a beautiful a young yeah. girl. I mean, yeah. she's getting older now, but she's yeah. a beautiful young girl. And, you know, it seems she could really do a lot better than Wolpe, to be quite frank. But I, you know, it's not my business, number one. And number two is, uh, I think, you know, she's probably got a lot of personal healing. This, from what I learned about her story, it's, her behavior makes sense if you know about her story. Yeah, I mean, she comes from a broken home. You come from a broken home. I come from a broken home. You know, we're all broken people who attract other broken people. And when broken until people... you heal, until you yeah, heal until and you do the heal. work, and yeah. and it's very hard. By the way, it's not easy. It's very very hard. But until you say, "I'm going to get this right," because you know what, God gave me very limited time on earth, even if God willing, we live to our 80s plus, that's not that much. So I need to get right with myself so that I can optimize my journey here on earth. And doing this is not the way I'm supposed to live. And so I, you know, I don't, again, I've never met her. It just seems like, you know, for some reason, there's this, this connection, if you will, but not really. But you know, I mean, she is in my novel and I just, I wish her the best. And um, I think she just needs to heal and all her behavior with the men and the stories. And I think if you understand her story, you realize that that's what she needs to heal is 
whatever hurt she has in her past. And if you know her story, then it makes perfect sense why she's obsessed with Wolpe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah. also, we have a profound effect on, on other people. Like, even when yes. I was in ultra hunter mode, there'd be all sorts of, like, serious uh, respect respectful women who I would never hit on, who I'd never even dream of telling a dirty joke to. Like, because we all put out a, a vibe. We all put out a force field. And so some people put out the force field, you know, come take me. And other people put out the force field that uh, you better be on, on your best behavior or I'm going to cut you loose right away. And so that's me now, which is yeah. why I never have a date. Yeah, I think I'm just terrify people. <laughs> they know, like, you know, I'm not playing games. I'm a sweetheart, but I don't have time. And so I think I give that off in a way. I, I honestly, I wish I was this way my whole life. But, you know, you, that's part of your trajectory, right. I guess, is you're learning and growing. But, but yeah, yeah, now I, I, you know, yeah, men don't play with me now. They're scared of me. Yeah. And what were the most important stepping stones in your recovery? Well, I, I had to really hit rock bottom. I mean, not only did I, I physically uh, crash, and a lot of that also was, you know, I was in the Army before and had sustained injuries and, and issues, and it just everything cascaded in a really bad way. And then I felt like I was spiraling from 2012. And it really is bizarre, but it was like I, I was not only spiraling mentally, but my body physically, and I became just very unwell, spirit, mind, and body, and uh, it was really awful, and then I feel like in 2019, it just climaxed in a way that is pretty profound um i'm not sure i really want to go into that right now that's, maybe your, that's your next gonna... book your next book is I mean, on yeah, how you maybe, heal. yeah yeah but it really amen to that but it really it would say 2019 is when i said okay so i kind of started in 2016 what i can say is that in 2016 i i, I have a pacemaker i almost died in a car accident and then I was profoundly ill. And in 2018, I started therapy to, to heal my body, not even my mind, just my body. I became very non-functional. But then as if things didn't go from bad to worse, they did. And so that's what 2019 was about. And at that point is when I said, you know, God wants me to be here for some reason Then I need to put in the work. And I want to say for 2019, and then it was, you know, the whole COVID thing, but I was doing the work spiritually mentally so for three years and I just feel like my life is revolutionized and I'm just so profoundly grateful and um I I just feel I'm a living testament and that's why I wrote the book also to say that no matter what you go through in life you can overcome if, as long as you have life you know I mean if you don't have life then it doesn't matter at all but as long as you have life you don't have to stay defeated by your circumstances and I think that message is particularly um, powerful now because you know there's this real victim mentality mindset that sort of prevails and I want people to feel empowered like you are not the bad things that happen to you. If they didn't kill you, they can truly make you a better human being. But you do have to heal. And so much of that pain we carry, I mean, I have grown kids. They're 
early 30s and my older boy, he's got a lot to heal. So I relate to, I understand when people have that pain, but the other part of me says we also can't use it as an excuse to continue to be crappy people. Yeah. Okay, great. It's been really good to talk to you, Diana. Any any final words, anything you'd like to offer before we wind up the show? Well, look, I just want to say I'm really grateful to meet you. I'm really grateful for your time and for this opportunity. Thank you so, so much. It's been really delightful. And I'm very grateful that you really took the time to, you know, pour into my story. And I just... Thank you so much. Okay. Stay in touch. And yes. if you ever want to collab about yeah. the politics of the day, I'm all over that. I love okay, that. Okay. Great. Great. All okay. right. Be, Thank you. Be Thank well. you, Diana. Thank Take you care. for your time. You're okay, welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.